Thank you so much, Howard. And thanks to everybody who uh, like was supportive Wednesday night. I'm hearing an echo. Is it my head? <clears throat> Maybe I'm an airhead and just uh, finally getting a hold of it. Um, if you need a lesson, raise your hand. Uh, while the lessons are being handed out, um, we've got a need down here. Gary doesn't have one. Uh, down here, Perry. Gary and Perry. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Um, uh, John Vonberg and I were talking last night. Uh, he's got, uh, would you stand up, John, so people know who you are? He's got a men's group that meets on Tuesday mornings at like 2 in the morning or something. What time is it? It's 5.30 in the morning in the student center. And it's a group that's just starting up. Uh, they've had a couple of weeks, I think. Um, they, they have about 100 and some odd men who are coming together and then divide up into groups. It's a lot like uh, Danny Way and Mike Moriarty's group uh, is on Saturday morning. And if you are a man and you want to plug into a group that's got some teaching and then it's got some smaller group fellowship, uh, uh, it's awkward sometimes for some men to do that, but it's an incredible blessing and a great way to grow. So I'd invite you to talk to John or talk to Danny Way or Mike Moriarty uh, who have the Saturday morning group if either of those might work for you. Um, <clears throat> let's see. This Wednesday night, if y'all will come. Now, you don't have to do like a section of our class last Wednesday night all sat together to encourage me and they started doing the wave. <laughs> I'm not asking for the wave, okay? <laughs> Though it was kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> But if, uh, if you want to come this Wednesday night, it's almost, um, in some ways, our three-year biblical literacy class rolled into 30 minutes. Um, we're going to be making the case for Christ. There are so many different ways you could do that. Um, the approach that I'm going to use is one that, that I've been asked to do an approach as a lawyer, making a closing argument. And so I, I'm going to be doing that, and I'll take a lot of joy in it. Uh, uh, if you are there, it, it will uh, be something that I hope is beneficial. Uh, you don't have to think, well, I'm not a believer. I mean, I already am a believer, so that's not going to do me anything. Uh, it, it hopefully will encourage you and challenge you at the same time anyway. So uh, please come if it fits into to what uh, you're doing this Wednesday night. And don't hesitate to bring friends. It won't be offensive, uh, I hope. And it won't be a club people over the head, I hope. Uh, but it may, uh, may be something that's useful um, uh, for different age groups as well. So uh, be that as it may. As I listened to the sermon this morning, I decided I could start in the middle of our lesson since he covered 2 Timothy, the first chapter, pretty well. Um, but, you know, I did these PowerPoint slides. I thought, ah, you know, Columbus took a chance and look what happened for him. So we might as well just stay with it. So we're going to look at Paul's last days uh, uh, and Paul's last letter. It is 2 Timothy. Uh, someone uh, out there, and I've, I think, I forgot who, but someone asked me, would you bring me a complete set of the lessons? And I probably am going to kill myself for saying this out loud, but uh, I've done it. We, or Philip has. Philip, we've got a complete set of lessons for whoever it is that asked me. And so it was not you, Marcy. I would have remembered that. <laughs> Now, you see, he gave that great illustration about lying this morning. And bam, right out of the gate comes Marcy. No. And, and Perry's saying, look, this is, I live with this. No, I'm joking. He's not. Uh, <laughs> I love you, Marcy. Um, anyway, I've got those lessons down here. 
Paul's last letter and his last day, 2 Timothy. Let's start. Paul. What do we know about Paul? We're going to review what we've covered the last seven or eight or nine months of Paul very briefly because we want to put his last letter into context. Let's talk about what we knew about Paul as a traveler. Paul, he grows up in Tarsus. That's my little red explosion mark down there where Syria is today. This is today's makeup of Europe, okay? Paul is born in Tarsus, no mean city. He goes from Tarsus to Jerusalem down here where he trains under the feet of Gamaliel, the top rabbi of the day. He is an anti-church zealot while there. What do I mean? Well, one of the things we know Paul did is hold the cloak of those who stoned the first Christian, the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Now, you know the end of the story. If you were at church this morning, you know Paul dies a martyr's death. Paul, you know Paul's writing this letter as he's contemplating and looking at his death right in front of him. And Paul knows he's going to die a martyr's death. And yes, as the uh, preacher said this morning, Paul is resolute and he's firm. But I can't help but think in the back of Paul's mind, it never really left how Paul was responsible for the first Christian martyr. Except Paul was at the other end. Paul was the one seeing to the death. Paul was going to Damascus to lock Christians up and to have them killed when Paul has his conversion on the road to Damascus, just a little bit outside of Jerusalem. At that conversion, Paul sees Jesus Christ. Jesus appears to Paul. And Paul's blinded by the light until uh, Paul has hands laid on him and the scales fall from Paul's eyes. So Paul goes to Damascus. Paul's early growth is out in the wilderness. Paul goes off by himself. Paul makes the point, I didn't learn the Gospels from other people. I learned it directly from God. He took me and he taught me. And Paul has this profound understanding of the gospel that helps the church immeasurably. Paul goes on mission trips. Where does he go? Well, his first mission trip, he sets out right here from Antioch and he goes to the island of Cyprus and he starts hitting in Asia Minor right here, all of the little towns of Galatia, of southern Galatia. And he goes to all of those little towns in that first mission trip. And then he goes on a second mission trip where he not only visits those towns again, but he goes up in and around Ephesus, which would be right there. And Colossae, we know he ultimately uh, sees. We know he goes to all of the towns around there, up into Troas. Um, uh, he goes uh, just all of those coastal towns doing mission work in, in various places. Then he goes into Macedonia. He goes up into Thessalonica and Philippi. He goes to Berea. And as he makes his way down there, he takes a boat and he goes down to Athens. He shoots on over across the Isthmus to Corinth. These are the mission efforts of Paul's second missionary journey. Paul goes back to Jerusalem only to wind up getting to go on a third missionary trip at the expense of the state as he goes to make his appeal to Caesar in Rome. It's in Rome that Paul is under house arrest where Paul's able to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel and even some of, of, of uh, Caesar's guards are becoming Christians. And we know that Acts ends there, but by reading through the books Paul wrote after Acts, 1 Timothy, Titus specifically, we can construct that Paul most likely left Rome and came down here to Crete. That's where he left Titus to do some tidying up. And then Paul goes over and makes his way not only through Ephesus and, and through Macedonia, but eventually winters over here on the western coast of Greece in Nicopolis. And, and if you look, 
Do you see how Paul's basically been responsible for the growth of Christianity in so much of the world as it was known? Now, when Paul wrote, wrote uh, uh, Romans, Paul was over here in Corinth. Paul had not yet been to Romans. But Paul told the church at Rome he wanted to visit them. It may be, if nothing else, on his way to Spain because he wanted to go to Spain. And we have good indications from history that Paul did wind up going into Spain as well uh, uh, before he ultimately goes back to Rome. Now, that's what Paul's mission trips are. We know Paul was also writing letters to the churches. Where did he write? He wrote letters to the Galatian church first. We know he wrote letters to the Thessalonians and to the uh, Philippian church up there. We know he wrote letters to Colossae and he wrote Philemon and he wrote Ephesians all in and around this letter, uh, this area. We know he wrote to the church at Corinth on multiple occasions. We know he wrote to the church at Rome. So um, we have other letters he wrote to Laodicea, which would be over here, but we don't have that letter. These are letters we have and have read and have studied together. So we've got Paul, we've got his mission trips, we've got his letters, and then he also wrote letters to people. He wrote letters to Philemon. He wrote a letter to Titus, and he wrote two to Timothy. So those are Paul's travels that we've covered with him for the last eight months of our time, but really for the duration of Paul's life. And we figure that Paul was born um, uh, probably somewhere around the time of Christ. And so Paul's in his mid-60s as we're studying him today. These are his letters. Paul the person. What do we know about Paul the person? Again, we're stealing from Rembrandt. That's easy to do because the copyright's gone. Um, <clears throat> Paul was educated first in Tarsus. Tarsus, as Paul was a Roman citizen there, born a Roman citizen. So he had a family of some notoriety and achievement in the Roman world. Tarsus was a town that was known for its education system. In fact, the largest export of Tarsus as a town were teachers, scholars. Tarsus had a university system that taught people how to be teachers, and those teachers went out. Paul obviously had a very impressive education from a Greek perspective because we see Paul constantly quoting Greek poets and Greek philosophers from memory as he interacts with people in the Greek world. Not only did Paul have that Tarsus education, but as I mentioned before, in Jerusalem he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who even today is recognized as one of the two great rabbis of that time. We have a lot of writings of Gamaliel and his students, our uh, uh, sayings of Gamaliel and, and uh, writings of his students. There were two great rabbis uh, 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 at that time in, in Jewish history, the Rabbi Hillel and the Rabbi Gamaliel. And so Paul studied at their feet. Paul became a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul evidently was on the Pharisaic council as well. There's an indication of that from one of his speeches. So Paul has an incredible Greek education, but Paul has an incredible Hebrew education. This is truly a man that God has raised up who straddles both the Jewish world and the Greek world, and there is no question why God raised him up and made him the bridge for the church of Jesus Christ that stretched from the Jerusalem church and the Jewish life into the Greek life as well and into the Gentile church. Paul was a family man, not himself being married. It's apparent from Scripture that Paul was not married. However, we do know Paul kept up with his family because when Paul's imprisoned in, in Jerusalem and there was going to be an ambush to take his life, it was Paul's nephew 
who learned of the ambush and ultimately was used by God in the saving of Paul's life at that point in time. So Paul's kept tight with his family. He had siblings. He had at least one nephew. Paul was a zealous Jew. Before Paul became a Christian, he wasn't some pagan walking around living a profligate life. He lived a life of incredible singularity as a Jew. He was focused on the rules and he was a rule follower meticulously. He was self-righteous if there could be such a thing. He said, I challenge anybody to find a Jew who kept the law or keeps the law better than I do. <clears throat> because he was pretty clear on his Judaism. But the zealousness of the Jewishness is what caused him to persecute the church. He was ultimately a murderer. When I typed that into the PowerPoint, I paused and I thought, well, I don't want to say murderer. Why don't I type, he caused the death of, or better yet, he caused and or contributed to the death of. Or maybe he watched Stephen die. It's just so harsh to type the word murderer. But he was. And he knew it. And that's why he said, I am the chief of sinners. That's why the taste of God's forgiveness was so sweet to his mouth. Because he knew it was the last, he was the last person to deserve it. Paul was a murderer. Paul was a man who saw Jesus. He had a visible revelation of Jesus that changed his life. That took a man who was in every edition of who's who among the Jewish leaders and world. A man who clearly had money, who clearly had talent, a man who clearly had family of great nobility and reputation, a man who had opportunity, a man who was seen as a shining star. And because of a vision of Jesus Christ, all of that became, as Paul says in Philippians, rubbish to him in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And so this man who had it made, cashed it all in and instead opted for a life of persecution, jail, abuse, suffering, loneliness, on the road, poverty, and ultimate martyrdom. That doesn't happen unless you either see Jesus Christ or you're an absolute nutball. Okay. Seriously, think about it. Doesn't happen unless you see Jesus Christ or you're an absolute nutball. And I would suggest to you an absolute nutball could not have been as successful at spreading the gospel as Paul was. Nobody really listens to nutballs for long. Okay? So Paul sees Jesus and Paul is 100% sold. There's not a doubt in his mind on who Jesus was. I won't be using Paul this Wednesday night, but you could make the case for Christ just off of Paul. Paul is an absolute historical figure. We have so many writings about him and so many writings from him that are unquestionably from him. Scholars will question the authenticity of some of his writings, but a number of them nobody questions. And I don't see someone making that kind of a change absent a real vision of Jesus Christ. Paul endured hardships. Paul was an emotional writer. He wrote his feelings. He was an emotional person. 
He wasn't just some guy who sat up in a white ivory tower constructing letters for churches. He felt it. He cried. He had anguish. He, got, he worried. He'd write letters. Don't worry about anything. And then he'd be worried sick himself. That's the difference between God working through him on what he's teaching and him still being a human being who doesn't measure up. I wonder if he kept his letters just to read them to himself. Say, man, that was good. I need to do that. That's Paul. Paul was not always well physically. He had a thorn in the flesh. Good reasons to think that maybe he had a vision problem. Um, we don't know. But this is who Paul was as a person. Now, Paul wrote these last letters after he got out of Rome, went to Crete, went over and did his Asia Minor stuff, Macedonia, Nicopolis, and then we have the indication that he went to Spain, and we're not doing him justice if we don't throw that out there. In addition to the two passages in Romans 15 where Paul says he's planning on going, we have uh, First Clement, who was a bishop in the Roman church. He was like their pastor there at the church in Rome about 25 to 30 years after Paul died. So 25 to 30 years after Paul dies in Rome, Clement's writing a letter to the church at Corinth. And in the letter he talks about Paul taught righteousness throughout the whole world and having reached the limit of the West, that would be over here, he bore testimony before the rulers. He went back to Rome and so departed from the world. So we, we have that from a letter of one of the pastors who took over the church uh, uh, in years uh, after Paul, but still clearly within memory time of Paul being there. Um, it would be like uh, our new pastor writing something that DeMond did or our church did uh, 30 years ago. So that would be like 1975. When did our church start? 70-something. Anyway, fill in the blank. Think about your life, something that happened in 1975. Okay. That's the time span we're talking about. So we have that. Now, what was happening in Rome during this time period? And if I don't make it through class all today, we'll finish this next uh, Sunday, God willing. But uh, I, don't, I don't want us to shortchange what we're doing. And I want us to keep very fresh in our brain uh, uh, the flow and the context of this book because I think it adds to what we're reading to do it. Nero is the emperor at this time period. Nero was probably the emperor before whom Paul made his appeal. May have been Nero's first real brush with Christians, I don't know. But we strongly suspect and scholars believe that Paul's first appeal resulted in him being discharged. In fact, when Paul is in prison in Rome as he's writing his letters, he writes a letter to Philemon. He says, Philemon, prepare a room. I plan on being there shortly. Paul was not really imprisoned for anything the first time around that the Roman emperor would have found criminal. So it's very understandable as well as likely that Paul was released from that. But Paul comes back to Nero later. And when Paul comes back, it's a different Nero with a different Rome. Why? Because on July 18th and 19th of 64 AD, Rome had its own Katrina, if you will. It had its own disaster that radically changed the city. A city of over a million people, half of it destroyed by fire. Think about it. Half of the city burned down. The way they finally got the fire under control was by literally just tearing down blocks and blocks and blocks of houses. So the fire burned itself out. But out of the, the 14 districts that Rome had, four of them were totally obliterated. Seven of them partially obliterated. It was a very, very, very destructive fire. And the problem is, 
Nero comes in and immediately says, oh, gee, we burned all this down. Happy coincidence. This is where I wanted to build a brand new palace anyway. Now all you people that got burned out, sorry, go find a new place to build. I'm taking over your land and your houses and your property and we're going to build me this really huge honking big palace. And everybody started saying, you know, I bet he did this on purpose. I bet Nero burned this baby down because he wanted a house. That's the way he is. This guy's kooky anyway. You know, where was he? Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, that doesn't mean he did this because they hadn't invented him yet, remember? It just means he was fiddling around, okay? Nero, he comes back and oversees things. doesn't seem to do it too effectively. And so the rumors are rampant. Now, I know what you're saying. No one could ever start rumors, whoops, that uh, uh, someone had responsibility for something because they weren't paying attention like they should have. See, we do that today. I don't know where responsibility lies, and I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody, but think about all the blame game going around on what happened in New Orleans. Whether it's right or not, it's certainly being talked about. Well, it was talked about then. And the word was, it's Nero. Nero did it. So Nero's got to squelch the rumors. Do you know how he does it? He finds a scapegoat. He finds someone else to blame. You know who was really responsible for burning down our town? Wasn't me. It was those Christians. They're a wicked people anyway. They're rumored. Listen to this. They eat people. <laughs> that was one of the trash talks going around about Christians. They have this thing on Sundays where they eat like the body and the blood, drink the blood of somebody. <laughs> so, I mean, people who are cannibals, there's no telling what they did to burn down this town. And so this is being talked about and this is being used. Now, where do we get this? Tacitus was a Roman historian. Tacitus wrote about 40, 35 years later, around 100 AD. Look at what he wrote. He said, all human efforts did not banish the belief that the fire was the result of an order, of Nero's order. That Nero ordered, burn them. I'm going to leave town so it's not obvious it's me. You burn the town down. I'll come back and watch as it finishes up so I can build my palace. All human efforts did not banish the belief that the fire was the result of his orders. To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. That's the cannibalism. Called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition broke out. Resurrection. Not only in Judea, but even in Rome. An immense multitude was convicted by Nero. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. That's what happened to Peter. Or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero would have Christians put on stakes in his garden and he would burn them at night as torches to have while he had parties. Okay. This is going on in Rome. 
And I don't know how Paul got to Rome. I don't know if Paul was arrested. History doesn't tell us. I can see Paul going to Rome to minister to the church while this is going on. I can see him being one of the first people in. And uh, we don't know. But we do know that Paul writes 2 Timothy at this time. And Paul, when he writes 2 Timothy, is under arrest. But it's not the house arrest that we read about in Acts. He doesn't have freedom and liberty to move around. This is persecution. He's under arrest. He's in dungeon. He's in bad shape. He's destined to die. And this is what he writes. Now, if we have this flow of Paul in our minds, even if we don't get through the whole book today, we're reading a man's last words. We're reading the thoughts of a fellow that I've come to know over the last year, standing up here teaching about him and love in ways that I didn't know and love him before. And it's very touching to me. This is a very emotional lesson. It's in four sections. Uh, first, Paul, chapter 1, talks about his greetings and his concerns for Timothy. Much of what was covered this morning we'll look at again. Chapter 2, he has his instructions for Timothy. Chapter 3, he talks about the last days. And then chapter 4, he has some final words. Let's look at them in section by section. Chapter 1, greeting and Paul's concern for Timothy. I almost wanted to just go onto the overhead and put the Bible down and just read it word for word. And then I thought, you know, I'll just stand up here and read it word for word. These words, every word is so important and every word just touches me that I didn't want to skip over any of them. But out of interest of time and recognizing that this is biblical literacy instead of a thorough study of 2 Timothy, we're going to just look at a few of the passages here. But I'd urge you to go back and read it at the end of... of uh, uh, your day today or sometime. Paul, an apostle of, Je of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, that's Paul's typical start of a letter. Paul always starts identifying himself and who he is. But one thing that is unique about 2 Timothy that Paul doesn't do in any of his other letters when he identifies himself, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. According to the promise of life now, what's Paul staring in the face? Death. And as he's writing his letter that he knows may not get to Timothy in time, that he may not get to see, he hopes to see Timothy, but he may not get to see Timothy before he's dead. Paul, right front and center, doesn't say, I'm set to die. He says, in Jesus Christ, I'm set to live. I have life. It's a promise an absolute promise from one who doesn't lie. I have a promise of life in Christ Jesus. And then he says, to Timothy, my dear son. And Timothy was his son. I won't go into great details because we already had that this morning in church. But Timothy uh, was Paul's uh, son in the faith. And uh, um, uh, the preacher did a good job this morning of reminding us about Timothy's mother and grandmother, his mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois. And, and all of that. Um, grace, mercy, and peace. That's Paul's greeting. And then Paul does say, I thank God as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears, Timothy. I want to see you so I can be filled with joy. Now Paul's writing this. Paul is alone. Luke is with him, but nobody else. Paul is alone, and he's sitting there thinking, all right, what do I want to tell Timothy? 
I want to get one more letter out to Timothy. I want to make sure Timothy knows and remembers that I remember Timothy's crying and I long to see him because it fills me with joy to be with Timothy. He says, I've been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and now lives in you. And for this reason, because of this faith that's in you, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. We've all been given the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to fan it into a flame. God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. Here are some pictures. We don't have a spirit of timidity in Jesus Christ. Children are often timid. And, and you know how they, well, that's it. But that's not the spirit we have in Christ. He says, I want you to blow on it. I want you to fan into flame what you've got because here's what you've got, Timothy. You've got a spirit of power. Do you know what the Greek word for power is? Dunamis. Do you know what we get from that? Dynamite. This is the spirit we've got. Not timidity. We've got one of power. Now this is Paul who at the time has apparently no power over his life. He's under lock and key. He's in a dungeon. He doesn't get to pick what he eats. He doesn't get to pick who he sees. He doesn't get to pick anything. He's in chains. And he said, but I've got a spirit of power. And so do you, Timothy, as he encourages the boy. He says, you've got a spirit of love that just radiates for the world. You've got a spirit of self-discipline. I did not pick the military illustration after the sermon. That was just a great, I mean, this is like today, okay? So, uh, um, which is always nice. It's much better than him doing the scripture and me doing the scripture and it going like that, you know? Um, Self-discipline. This is the spirit we've got in Jesus. And he says, so don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Don't be timid. Don't be scared. Don't be hesitant. Don't be worried. When you go to work, when you're with your neighbors, you don't have to be ashamed about the fact that Jesus Christ is your Lord. I'm not ashamed. I'm in prison and I'll gladly give my life for it. You know why he says... Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed to testify me about, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. Here's why. For I know whom I've believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. The church I grew up in, we sang a song off of this scripture. Do y'all know that song? For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that that I've committed unto him against that day. It sends a chill down my spine. Paul doesn't say, I know what I have believed and I'm persuaded that all of my, my church doctrine and all of my belief system and all of the things that I do just right. No. Paul doesn't say, I know what I have done, and I'm persuaded that it's going to be enough. No. Paul says, I know whom. I know Jesus. 
I have a relationship. The Greek word for know isn't just a mental awareness. It's an intimacy. Adam knew Eve, his wife. Hebrew word, but the same with the Greek. Knew Eve, his wife. And they have an offspring because it's a reference to intimacy. Paul says, I have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and I am absolutely convinced that He's able to guard what I've entrusted to Him. I've got no shame. Timothy, don't have any shame. Don't be timid. Don't be afraid. This is your Father in the faith speaking to you and you may never hear my voice again, but you hold this letter in front of you and you know that God has given you a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-control. And with that you're ready for His works. So live, Timothy, like you saw me live. Let's get more specific. Let me give you these instructions, Timothy. I want you to stay strong. Stay strong in the Lord. As you get older and you lose uh, relationships, people who are dear to you, don't use it as a... Don't let it be something that allows you to start fading from life. My um, older sister Catherine said to me one day while we were running, she said she's got this new image of things. She said uh, uh, she thinks things start fading as they get older. And, and some of our strength as a person seems to fade sometimes. Our hair seems to fade, some faster than others, or maybe if not fade in a presence, at least in appearance as the color starts to kind of blanch out. Um, and... and, and uh, you know, Paul is saying, as something happens to me, you don't use it as an excuse to start fade away, fading away. I think he'd have liked the Neil Young song, Better to Burn Out Than to Fade Away. My, my, hey, hey. Um, <laughs> you know, he says, just stay strong. You keep going. And here's what it means you teach others. I'm teaching you, this is what the preacher was saying some this morning, is just in the second chapter and he didn't have time to get to it. I'm teaching you, Timothy. You do like you see in me and then you find other people and you teach them. Because if Jesus tarries and doesn't come back, in 1930 years they're going to be talking about this in Champion Forest Baptist Church and we're going to need to have people trained to talk about it. So you teach others. You stay strong. You see, you've got to pass it on. And that's what we've got to do. My, great -grand my great grandmother died when I was, I was, I, was uh, I don't know how old I was. Um, I was out of law school. I preached her funeral. And I, I can tell you this, till the very end, she was still teaching us. She was still teaching us. Of course, we come from a family of mouths. So we just consider it our obligation to continue talking as long as we have breath. And the way we get away with that is we say we're teaching. Okay? So teach others. You got kids, you got grandkids, you got friends. Teach others. Pass it on. Don't only stay strong that way, but endure hardship the way a soldier does. A soldier will endure hardship pleasing his commander. We endure hardship pleasing Jesus Christ. It may be tough. It may be difficult. But you stay strong and you, you just endure the hardships when it comes. That's what we talked about last Wednesday night. And he says also stay strong and compete, play according to the rules. 
You don't win a game if you break the rules. You got to play by the rules to win, but then you can win. He says, play by the rules. Do right. Do what you know is right. And then he says, take joy in the fact that you work hard at what you're doing because the farmers get the first share. They get, yesterday we picked oranges off our orange tree. I'm so excited. I get to eat oranges. Of course, they taste terrible compared to the ones you buy at the store, but we pretend they're good because they're ours. I got seeds, they're pithy, they're dry, but these are our oranges and we're eating the first ones. In fact, y'all are welcome to them if y'all want to come get them <laughs> because I'm getting some more at Kroger. We'll swap. But the theory behind it is the farmer gets joy from eating his first fruits. Timothy, you work and you'll take joy in it and it'll be hard and mine's been hard. Don't you see Paul saying this is the way it's been with me? I've been teaching others. I've been trying to do right by the rules. I have been, been farming you and others and I've taken joy out of it. That's why I want to see you again. It just gives me joy in my last days. He says, so stay strong and know that while I'm in chains, God's word's not. Nobody, nowhere, no how can chain God's words. God's word. Now, I have a, a, an interesting email assignment. I got um, one night toward the end of last week and I haven't figured, I've got it in my brain. I haven't typed it out. I got an email from a fella who uh, writes for the New York Times. In fact, he's visited our class before, Alex Berenson. And Alex has also written... Uh, and published some books and he's got a fiction book that's coming out and he's working on his next fiction book and I suspect that may be why he wrote me. Now Alex is Jewish I don't know how much of a practicing Jew he is but Christians are are something he doesn't know a lot about so he sends me an email and he says don't worry this is off the record it won't appear in the New York Times but I'd like you to answer two questions for me Scenario one, you live in Houston, Texas, and it's 2060, and there's been nuclear holocaust. And America is ruled by a military junta that won't uh, give power over to anybody. And you're a preacher. What kind of message do you preach to your church? And then the other one is, uh, Houston's gone and we're in Dallas. <laughs> and uh, it's another set of things, but it's also illegal to be a Christian. What kind of message do you preach? And I'm excited about answering that because I, I got some answers. And uh, I'll share them with you when I get them done. But um, uh, Paul's saying, I may be in chains, but God's word isn't. There's nothing that's going to chain it. doesn't matter who's ruling. Nothing chains God's word. So stay strong because if we died with Christ, which we did on Calvary, the biblical concept is not that we die now. We died with him on Calvary. When we accept him in faith, that was our death. If we died with Him, we'll live with Him. If we endure, we'll reign with Him. If we disown Him, if we won't have anything to do with Christ, and Christ is not our Lord, and we choose to live without Christ as our Lord, if we're not Christians, He disowns us because we're not His. Why? Because when we're faithless, if we don't have faith in Him, He still is faithful to who He is. He can't disown Himself. He can't change who He is. If we have faith in Him, then we are His. If we don't have faith in Him, He cannot disown Himself. and be, he, he, he disowns us. It's a difficult passage. We're not dealing with it in depth. 
I, I've probably put more of it in the lesson. If you look at it, if not, I'll supplement it with an email. So Paul says, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Okay, Sterling, you have to watch for a minute. I want you to remember 2 Timothy 2.15 because I want you to memorize it. Okay? Anybody under the age of 18 has to go memorize this passage. Okay, It's the rule. Next time I see you, I want you to quote it for me. Okay, This is a good one. This is a good one. Here's what it means. Do your best. You don't have to pay attention all the time. Just when I get your attention. This is okay. It's all right. I've got, now he's scared to death. Oh my gosh, I wasn't listening. No, it doesn't matter. Now you have to listen. All right? You, you, then you, you don't have to listen to the whole thing. Man, I appreciate you even being in here. But here's the deal. You do your best. You do your best to give yourself, to show God that you will work for Him you're not ashamed to do it. You're glad to do it. And you're ready to do it. Because you know how to use His Scripture to change who you are. And that's required memory verse for anybody under the age of 18 in here. If you're over the age of 18, you've got to do it. Not just memorize it. Okay, warnings about the last days. Paul says in the last days, there's going to be people who have a shadow of godliness. They look like, you know, they may have the form of godliness, but they don't have the power. They don't have the meat. There's this lawyer from New York I got to know who cracks me up. His name's Ben Morelli. And he talks about coming from the gut. And I think he just does it because he must do like workout stuff. And when I do it, it kind of wiggles. But when he does it, it doesn't, okay? So I think that's really just kind of his way of saying, look, I have, I have abs. And, and I have abs. They're just way back there. And so... <laughs> I don't remember. I think it was Wednesday night. Some lady came up and hugged me after church. It was Linda Rutledge. She hugs me after church. She says, Whoa, what is that? <laughs> anyway, it was right there. It's called Love Handle. Anyway, so here's what he says. He says, You get it down here in your gut. And you just... That's his motion. And he gets this... He's like four foot three. And he just... He, just, he jumps back. And he says, stick it to him. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, there are these people in the last days who are going to have the form of godliness, but they're not going to be able to <laughs> have the power. Okay? Have the... <gasps> these are people who are going to love themselves. These are people who aren't going to have self-control. They're going to love money. They're going to be boastful and proud. They're going to be abusive. They're going to be disobedient to their parents. They're going to be ungrateful. They're going to be unholy. They're going to live without love. They're going to be unforgiving people. They're going to love pleasure rather than God. And why does he say that these are people who have a form of godliness but deny its power? Because the power of God in you and me is to change us from all of that into something holy. The power of God for you and me is to change us from being lovers of self with no control and wanting money and boastful and proud and abusive and disobedient and ungrateful. Takes all of that and changes us. And there's nothing else with enough power to do that. But that's what God has. So Paul says, Timothy, you know better. So you do better. You know better because you've got the Scriptures. You've got the Old Testament. The Scripture 
is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. That, that, that theopneuma, it, it means literally God has put his spirit into Scripture. He's breathed into Scripture. Now, the Paul's time, Paul's writing this, Paul's talking about the Old Testament. But we understand it to apply also to the New Testament because it's Scripture as well. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when you memorize your 2 Timothy 2.15 for me, which is really for you, this is what you're doing. You're saying, I'm going to use Scripture and be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm going to rightly handle the Word of God. Now, Paul's final words. Paul says... Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Never be caught off guard. Keep your head, Timothy, in all situations. I love that because that's like a 21st century expression. It's right there. Keep your head in all situations. I'm set to be poured out like a drink offering. I don't have long for this world. But I have fought the good fight. And I have finished the race. And I've kept the faith. And I know that the crown laid up for me is there. Not a crown that we're going to wear in front of Jesus. We're not going to be prancing around heaven. Look at my crown. When we get to Revelation, we're going to see in the presence of Jesus, we take our crowns off and we cast them down in front of him and say, only you're worthy. Okay? But there is a victory for us that's been won by Jesus and a crown that Jesus has won for us. And Paul says, that's why I can do this resolutely. But he doesn't leave without the human element. He says, do your best to come to me quickly. Hurry. And get Mark. He's helpful to me. Do you know when we read about Mark? Remember back in Acts? Mark's the one that went on the first missionary trip and dropped out. And then when Paul's talking about doing the second missionary trip, Barnabas says, hey, let's take my cousin Mark along. Paul says, no, nah, that loser. He dropped out the first time. I need somebody reliable. Mark found redemption in Paul's sight. Paul says, bring Mark. He's helpful to me. Bring the cloak I left and get my scrolls, especially the parchments. Can you bring those and come quickly? And then the last words we hear from Paul. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And Paul dies. A preacher this morning made a reference to Paul being beheaded. That comes from a book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla, which was written about 100 years after Paul died. Uh, maybe not quite 100. It was written around 150 A.D. Um, but church authority is pretty clear that Paul died in Rome. There's not really much doubt about that. I've given some references in the um, materials. In fact, Paul is one of those folks where we really have a pretty good indication where he died, where he was beheaded. It's either where he was beheaded or at least where he was buried initially. It's called on the Ostian Way, which is the Ostian Road. And within a hundred years of his death, there had already been marked here, this is where Paul died. The church had seen to it as a holy place and written about it. We've still got an early indication of it. That says Paulo, which is Latin for Paul, Apostolamari, uh, which is uh, uh, the Apostle Paul. And uh, if you go to Rome, you can see where uh, uh, Paul was executed. Now, points for home. Everybody in this room is going to die. 
unless Jesus comes back and takes us to him. Everyone in this room will die. It is my prayer that we die in Jesus. It's not only my prayer that we die in Jesus, it's my prayer that our families and loved ones die in Jesus. And in the meantime, let's live in Jesus because that's our eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the wonderful life you put on this earth in Paul and the way through that one man you have touched so many for so many centuries. And Lord, I know you work in our lives just as much and that each one of us are uniquely placed here to do things for you that no one else can. It is my prayer that all of us, young and old alike, will apply ourselves diligently to be your workmen, correctly handling your word of truth and seeking to teach and encourage and love other people. Bless us, Lord. Bless this class. Bless this church, our community, our country, our world. In Jesus we pray, amen.